Now, some of us have gone to church for a long time. This stuff can grow old and stale. Just want to remind you what a privilege this is for us to gather this way, to sing this way, to pray this way. You believe that God is here by his spirit. You believe that God speaks through his word by his Holy Spirit. We do engage Almighty God tonight. It's a good place for us to be. For the past six weeks, we have intentionally lingered at the foot of the cross, listening to the seven last recorded cries of Jesus. And we've been encouraged to consider what Jesus said as it gives insight to us more about who he is, more insight about what he's done, what he accomplished some 2,000 years ago on that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. So the past six weeks, we've had these words of Jesus, these cries of Jesus wash over us for our formation as disciples. Words like these, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These words of deep forgiveness and compassion. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus spoke that to the criminal. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That cry of surrender and trusting himself to the Father. And then last week, Anita shared with us, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So as we near the end of the series, as we approach Holy Week, I pray that you'll be open to whatever it is that God, by his Holy Spirit, wants to say to you and to us tonight. Uh, today's words, today's cry, it's the shortest cry from the cross. Two words, two little words. Got a lot to say about two little words. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to John chapter 19. John 19, verse 28. John writes and tells us in his gospel after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is cry number six of seven. I thirst. Uh, many of you know that a few weeks ago, my son Logan had a pretty nasty knee injury uh, during one of his lacrosse matches. He dislocated his kneecap which led to an ambulance ride and a late-night hospital visit and about four to five hours of horrific pain before they were able to put his knee back in place. And I'll spare you the pictures, though I have them, and I'll spare you the gory details of it all. But during those four-plus hours of being in the ER, right next to his desire to have his knee put back in place was his desire for a cup of water. He's like, Dad, I'm thirsty. 
can I have can I have a drink? Can I get some ice chips even? So we asked the nurse, and she's like, no, because they didn't know if they were going to have to put him under. They didn't know if they were going to have to do surgery. They didn't know what was going on. So they repeatedly denied Logan any water or any ice chips because they insisted he had to have an empty stomach because they didn't want to see it come back up later. Which meant like all he wanted was a cup of water and all we could offer him in the meanwhile was a pack of lemon-flavored oral swabs. Basically moistened, flavored Q-tips. But man, they taste good when you're thirsty. And so my wife Callie rubbed these swabs over his lips and over his tongue, and he tried to suck on them. Why? He's thirsty! He just wanted something to quench his thirst. His mouth was parched. His lips were, they got chapped after a few hours. And he tried with those little oral swabs to get every ounce of moisture possible. Dad, I thirst. As someone who was born in the 70s, and then was a child in the 80s. I was a sucker for marketing. And as a kid, they released this cutting-edge sports drink. And way before it became what it has become today, and way before Michael Jordan became a poster child and wanted us to be like Mike, Gatorade had a jingle in the mid-80s for this drink. And I think I have it on the screen. Yeah. Does it take you back a little bit? I tell you, I would give anything for some Gatorade. Thirst aid for that deep down body thirst. It's another way of saying I thirst in the deepest part of who I am. John 19, Jesus is on the cross. And what do they offer him? Not oral swabs. Not a glass of water, not Gatorade, but they offer him some sour wine. The Greek word is oxos. It's more like vinegar. This isn't the first time that Jesus has offered something on the cross. Earlier, while on the cross, Mark records it in Mark 15, 23. The soldiers offer him wine mixed with myrrh, which really was an offer to dull his pain like a narcotic. And Jesus refuses any of his sedatives. And he faces the cross with his full senses. But here, now, they offer him sour wine. It wasn't in a nice glass, though. It said there was a jar of it, and then they throw it on a sponge. And they put it on a branch, and they offer it to his lips. Simple sour wine. 
So Jesus is in his final moments before he faces death. And this is what he says. I thirst. Two words. I thirst. Deep down body thirst. It's like, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why in the world are we like 2,000 years later, we're talking about a dying man's conversation about being thirsty? Like most people are like, yeah, duh, he's dying. He's on a cross. Of course he's thirsty. But today, Palm Sunday, leading into Holy Week, we've been talking about considering Jesus. I want you to consider today the thirst of Jesus. And I want to just talk about three, three pieces of that thirst, three implications of that thirst. Here's the first one. The thirst of Jesus is an expression of of real, genuine, human need. The the thirst of Jesus, these words, I thirst, they they ring out with identification. They ring of identification with humanity. This is normal human need. And it doesn't take a scholar to figure out that at this point in the crucifixion process, Jesus is Bent. Again, we'll rehearse more of it on Good Friday, but he was arrested the evening before. He was beaten through the night. His exhaustion was so great that he physically couldn't carry the cross up the hill himself. They had to pull and conscript someone from the crowd to carry it for him. The Bible tells us it was 9 a.m., the third hour when he was nailed to the tree. It was noon, the sixth hour, when darkness covered the land. And then it was the ninth hour, 3 p.m., when Jesus cried out that, that Psalm 22 cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you begin to do the math on that. That's at least six hours that he hung from the spikes, gasping for breath, clinging for life itself. That's an enormous amount of exertion, endurance. Jesus is thirsty. Because human beings have a built-in need for drink. It's essential for life itself. Again, I won't spend too much time belaboring this first point here, but I'm just going to keep naming it as we've been going through this series, and I'm going to keep poking at it and pushing back on it that Jesus, according to the Bible, and Jesus, according to the ancient creeds, He is God, and yet He also is human, fully God, fully man. And we can't ignore the humanity of Jesus. Jesus didn't glide his way to death with a wink and a smirk. No, he he agonized over it in the garden. You remember those hours in the garden when he's praying? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Like he is really in that place of agonizing over what was about to happen. And yes, he surrendered in obedience. But he's sweating like drops of blood. And he wept real tears. And he bled real blood. 
And Jesus was thirsty. He had real, genuine, biological, human need. He was thirsty, like for reals. He was thirsty just like Logan was thirsty in the ER. He's thirsty just like you are after you go for a run. He was thirsty just like after a soccer match or after you go for that hike in the mountains. Just like a a newborn baby clamors for her mother's milk. Goodness, he's thirsty just like you are after an afternoon of long meetings in an air-conditioned office. And you get thirsty. And so many people with good motives often emphasize the divinity of Jesus. And yes, he is fully God, but we can easily skip over the reality of the incarnation, the enfleshment of Jesus. And this may just be a small thing, but it's an important thing. And there's something powerful for us to identify with and realize that in Jesus, he was fully man. He's thirsty. Hebrews 2 reminds us, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So some of you may have a hard time connecting with God in prayer. Some of you may have a hard time connecting with God in your Bible reading. May I remind you that every single time you're thirsty, which for me is many times a day, every time you're thirsty, may that be a reminder to you that Jesus was thirsty too. You share that with Jesus. He really was a human. He really walked this earth. He thirsted. May you be reminded in those moments that God knows what it's like to face limitation and need. I thirst, I ache, I lack. I'm not self-sufficient. I have need. Let me put this one step further, though. Not only is his cry of thirst this expression of humanity, like we all share in thirst, we all get thirsty, but it's also an expression of paradoxical love. Because in some ways... Jesus shouldn't have been thirsty. Because this isn't just me making the statement, hey, I got thirsty today. You too? This isn't Billy or Leah or Sarah or Susie making the statement. It should strike us as odd that Jesus makes this statement in a couple ways. Because all throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, he talks about thirst a lot. Do you realize that? He is constantly talking about thirst and he's constantly offering mind-blowing promises of provision for people's thirst. I I could do a whole series, I think, about the, the thirst theme of Jesus, but I'll spare you a whole series and give you the overview today. So at the end of John here, John 19, Jesus on the cross says, I thirst, but let the record show this is the same Jesus earlier in John, John 2. John 2 is Jesus' first recorded miracle. Anyone know what his first recorded miracle was? Yeah, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. The wedding party ran out of wine, which is a horribly embarrassing social faux pas. 
party of the year and you run out of wine. What does Jesus do? They gather up these stone jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing. And it wasn't just like a little, little glass. It says, John tells us that each of these six stone water jars held 20 to 30 gallons of water. Six of those. You begin to do the math on that, that Jesus creates 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Not bad for the party. 120 to 180 gallons of wine to keep the party going. Not cheap boxed wine, but the kind when the host of the wedding tastes it says, you saved the best for last. This is amazing. So the one who spins water to wine is now the one who says, I thirst. That's John 2. Two chapters later, John 4, Jesus engages this woman, a Samaritan woman, by a well. She's a social outcast. We know that because of the time of day that he meets her there, because no one in their right mind goes at noon in the Middle East to fetch water at the well. That's the worst time of day to go to the well. The only reason you go to the well at that point in the day is because you're trying to avoid being seen or engage people. And Jesus shows up at Jacob's well, and he asks for a drink. He asks the woman for a drink because he says, I'm thirsty. And I won't share the whole interaction, but it's beautiful what Jesus does here. And Jesus turns the conversation. After he asks her for a drink, he turns the conversation and says, actually, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink. And he says this. Here's his punchline. John 4, 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the one who promises living water so that you will never thirst again. That's a bold claim. Jesus, the one who promises water to never thirst again, he's the one on the cross who says, I'm thirsty. Three chapters later, John 7 Jesus is at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem at the temple, and he drops this line. John 7, 27, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus does not like back off of this thing. He keeps talking about people being thirsty, people having need, and he says, come to me. I'll give you, you're going to actually have this reservoir, this like flowing, living water coming out from you if you come to me. Do you, do you see what Jesus is doing over and again, time and again? He keeps offering water, living water, rivers of living water, an invitation to the thirsty to come and find him as the solution to their thirst. So like this, this should strike us as paradoxical 
that this one who's like, oh, water to wine. I'll give you water. You're never going to be thirsty again. Come to me, and from you, you're going to have this source of living water. And now at the end of his ministry, he's on the cross, and he's like, I'm thirsty. If anyone shouldn't have to say, I'm thirsty, it should be Jesus. Because he keeps talking to the thirsty, saying, I've got a solution for your thirst. Here on the cross, the well of living water has thirst. The one who quenches thirst is thirsty. The one who promises water to never thirst again is thirsty. The one who promises a well of living water has no water. And the one who turns water into wine cannot wet his whistle. It should be funny. It should be ironic. It should be paradoxical when we're like, Jesus was on the cross and he says, I thirst? It's an expression of his paradoxical love. Or as one person put it, next slide, Jesus' I thirst is another way of revealing God's utter self-giving availability to us. Or if you put it another way, this is just another example of how much he loves us. Jesus' statement of thirst is another example of how he serves us. Another expression of how deep Jesus is willing to go. He's willing to taste the depths of our thirst so that we may find satisfaction in him. This is the great emptying This is part of the great exchange. This is part of the fullness of self-giving love. Because Jesus shouldn't be thirsty in a couple ways. He should never, ever have been on the cross. He was the one who knew no sin. He was innocent. He shouldn't die. He shouldn't have been on the cross in the first place. He didn't deserve it. And yet he's also the one who promises quenching of thirst over and over and over again. But in love and in obedience to his Father, Jesus was willing to say, I thirst. And not just say it, but experience it. Isaiah 55, 1, this theme is Old Testament too. The prophet Isaiah Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. At the end of the story in the book of Revelation, Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isaiah, Revelation, talks about water, wine, milk, thirst things, without money or price, that the water of life for the thirsty is free. That's the offer of God to sinful humanity. It's free. Come. Come to me. I will give you what satisfies. And it's not going to cost you anything. The reason why it's free, the reason why it's without money and without price is because Jesus paid the price himself. And so he says, I've got something for you. Jesus paid the tab of our thirst in himself. 
as an expression of paradoxical love. And you see just how deep this theme runs. And I'm hoping that you begin to see that, yes, we're talking about Gatorade and water and wine, vinegar, sour wine on a stick. We're talking about, I'm thirsty, I'm dying. Like, he can't even scratch his nose. He can't, he can't, he can't satisfy his thirst. He says, I thirst because he's thirsty, but there's something else going on in his cry for thirst that's more than just, can you get me a glass of water? This is deep down body thirst. Thanks, Gatorade. But like deep down body thirst that runs deeper than water or wine. Because when Jesus talks about thirst, this is the last piece. The thirst of Jesus draws us deeper into the realm of our desires. He's like, yeah, I'm thirsty. Man, I sure could go for a glass of something right now. But I'm thirsty. And even if I drink that, I'm going to still be thirsty again. And There's something in that that's deeper. So I do believe Jesus is on the cross. He's thirsty. He's, t- he's tired. He's exhausted. He's parched. He would love nothing more than some fresh water, good wine, something to, de- to meet the demands of his beaten, aching body. He would love for you know, a little swab on his lip and his tongue. But there's more. It's deeper, this thirst theme for you and for me. It's deeper than that. Like when you watch Jesus engage the Samaritan woman, he starts talking, he's at a well and he's, he's thirsty and he talks about, hey, can you get me a drink? And actually, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink. And he talks about living water to her. But then where does Jesus go next? He's talking to the Samaritan woman and he goes from well to water and then he starts talking about her love life. He says, well, I want your, bring your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, that's right, you have, you've had five husbands, and the person you're living with now isn't your husband. He starts talking about her loves. And then he starts talking to her about worship. There's a debate about where, where are we supposed to worship? In Jerusalem or someplace else? And Jesus starts talking about the deepest longing of her soul toward God. So Jesus goes from a well to water to love life to worship because thirst is deeper than that. Our thirst is a cry for a greater, deeper need. In John 7, when Jesus offers rivers of living water, he's not just talking about an open bar. He's not just talking about an Olympia artesian well where you can go and refill your water jug for free. He's talking about a greater deeper need he's talking about the thirst under your thirst the need under your need and so as we begin to shift this even toward you tonight and i talk about you tonight talk about me tonight we're not just talking about water we'll get something to drink for dinner tonight but it provokes this question what are you thirsty for What are you thirsty for? And that's a real question. I don't want you to say it out loud. But I'm going to give you like a minute, which when you're in church, quiet for a minute, it feels like 30 minutes. But 
take 60 seconds and take a little piece of paper, either in the chair in front of you or maybe on your note app on your phone. What are you thirsty for? Like, what do you want? And just take a few seconds to write something down. Could be your desire. Could be a dream. Could be tied to your despair. What do you want? On the cross, more than sour wine from a sponge, Jesus is thirsty for deeper things. I think it's fair to say that Jesus on the cross was thirsty for shalom. I think it's fair to say that on the cross, Jesus was thirsty for justice. On the cross, I think it's fair to say that Jesus was thirsty for forgiveness. He was thirsty for unity. He was thirsty for the not yet of the kingdom of heaven. For all the ways that life isn't the way it's supposed to be at that time in heaven on earth. But underneath it all, I think even for Jesus on the cross, there was a greater thirst. Have you ever read Psalm 42 before? They made, a song, they made a worship song about this when I was a kid. I used to sing it a lot in church. Psalm 42, verse 1. The psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And the psalmist then draws this image, right, of a a parched deer, a thirsty deer, a dehydrated deer, longing, searching, seeking for water, for a flowing stream where this deer can get a drink. And the psalmist is like, yeah, that's like me. That's me. Just, you know, the deer. We're city slickers kind of here. Like We don't understand the inner workings of deer very well. That's what the psalmist is like. This is the best way I can describe it. It's like the deer, when they get so hot and hungry and thirsty and they just want some water, like that's me, that's my soul. I'm thirsty and here's what I need most. I want God. My soul thirsts for God. My soul is thirsty for the living God. Not a cheap substitute, but the presence of God, relationship with God who is able to satisfy my soul in the deepest place. And I think as much as Jesus is thirsting for unity and shalom and justice and the redemption of the world and forgiveness of sin, I believe that Jesus on the cross in his deepest thirst, he is thirsty for his Father. 
And he's experiencing something he's never experienced before because of the sin of the world. So Jesus is naming and experience the thirst, the thirst that I believe is underneath every thirst, the need that is underneath every need, the want that is underneath every want, to come and be in the presence of the living God because you're made for that. And we run around this world trying to find things that satisfy and they may give us a short reprieve, but then we want something else or something more. Our thirsts aren't bad, necessarily. Some are. But I think our thirsts point to something else. James K.A. Smith says, So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Let's talk about our hungers and our thirsts. It's not just about what we can gather in our brains. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. And so your life and my life and your discipleship and my discipleship, our formation requires paying attention to our thirsts. What are you thirsty for? What do you want? Some of the things that you may thirst for are beautiful and good. May actually represent the longings that will be fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. Many are built on the greatest thirst of your soul for God himself. But Jesus came and lived and died and he experienced thirst physically and spiritually so that your thirsts could be met in him and that you could be aligned with, fulfilled in God. What are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? The great quenching of our thirst is still to come. We live in this already but not yet of the kingdom. But in Jesus' thirst, we become aware of our thirsts and in our desires, we find invitation to come to him without money, without price. To have what we need offered to us in Jesus again and again. So your thirsts are real and they matter. It's part of being human. But I also think your thirsts are an invitation to the kingdom. And your thirsts are pointing you deeper. And today, the offer and invitation of Jesus still stands. Come. Come. Without money. Without price. He thirsts so that we can one day experience the satisfaction of our souls with God. So we're going to close our time today in a few ways and doing a few things. We get a chance to sing. Singing is a beautiful way for us to have language, borrowed language, to express what's going on inside of us. 
to express our thirsts to God. We're going to take communion in a second here, and the elements are here in the front. And again, you can do this without thinking about it, uh, or you can do it with meaning and intention. So as we sing this next song, you're welcome to come and gain, come and, and get the elements if you haven't already. But one other thing I want to add to the mix tonight, um, again, to help us not just keep this stuff in our minds and in our own hearts, but as a way to express this out to God and to others, is I've put some paper on the walls in the front and the back. I'm going to write the words, I thirst, on there. And I invite you, as we sing these last couple songs, just write maybe the thing that you wrote down. What do you thirst for? I thirst for. You don't have to sign your name on it. No one will know. Unless they do some handwriting analysis, but we're not going to do that. But I invite you. We'd love to put our thirsts on the wall and as an act of worship to the one who experienced thirst for us. It'd be good to see what we're thirsting for as a church. If you're able to stand, why don't you stand with me? I'll invite Tom and Hillary to come and lead us in music. We'll sing a song, take communion. You're welcome to write your thirst on the wall. The pens are on the chair right in front of the paper.